Hello and welcome to Lectio Continua, a podcast of Grace OPC in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. I am your host, Pastor Brian DeYoung. The sermon that we're going to take a look today is from Acts chapter 2, verses 33 through 36. This is the very end of Peter's great Pentecost sermon. And in this sermon, he is bringing it in for a landing. He's finishing up his exhortation to his audience there on Pentecost. One of the more difficult things for preachers is to know how to best end their sermons. Sometimes those sermons go on far longer than they need to, and the preachers can't seem to quite wrap it all up. At other points, um, he brings it in for a nice, smooth landing, and people get the point and are greatly impacted. I think this particular sermon that Peter preached on Pentecost was more of that second type. He wasn't just circling the field trying to figure out some way to land. No, he brings it in for a good smooth landing and he deals with a series of events in those last verses, the events of Jesus and his resurrection and his ascension, his exaltation to the right hand of God. Not only does Peter narrate those events, but he speaks about the implication of those events. He uses some verses from the Psalms to show how these events were the fulfillment of God's prophecy and they are highly, highly significant. But he ends, his final word is really an indictment to the Jewish audience listening. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that is a statement which just hits the mark. It goes directly to the heart of his hearers. And so Peter is really uh, wrapping up in a very powerful and profound sort of way. I sometimes struggle to know how to best end my sermons. And as I'm working on them and as I'm thinking about them, there's a great temptation to put all of the energy and attention on the opening half of the sermon. That's where you catch and hold people's attention and you figure that they're going to start losing focus and perhaps even losing interest, not even listening so much toward the end. But it's really, really important to push all the way through to the end to end on a good, clear, strong note. And I always like to have some sort of personal application at the very end so that the listener doesn't just simply take it, put it in his back pocket and forget about it. I want him to take those final words, those final uh, few points of the sermon and really think about them in terms of his own practical uh, response of faith and obedience to the word of God. So when there is a response that is called for, sometimes even leaving people with a question is a really good way to kind of wrap things up and to drive it deep into their hearts. One of the worst things of all is when people leave the church building and before they're even out of the parking lot, they have forgotten the sermon and they have not really spiritually benefited from the sermon. I want them to be benefiting from that sermon for a long time to come. And that means that I need to give them something to take home with them, something to think about and really focus upon. 
Well, I am going to shift gears and give you now the sermon. I hope that it's a blessing to you and listen for how Peter ends his sermon and also at the end of my sermon, how I conclude mine. May the Lord bless you. Would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 110. As you're turning there, you might wonder, how do I choose the corresponding reading? Well, sometimes it's a bit challenging, but this week was not, because Psalm 110 is quoted in our Acts passage. So Peter chose this, and we are following Peter's lead. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now please turn to Acts chapter 2 where we pick up at verse 33 and read through verse 36. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." pray and ask God's blessing. Lord, we come to your word today with expectation. And as we anticipate the blessings you have in store, we plead that you would not disappoint us, that we would go from this place being filled with your word and with joy. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a truism in this world that goes like this, out of sight, out of mind. When you don't see something for a while, that thing tends to slip from your consciousness. And even if you want to remember the thing, it's not always easy to keep it fresh in your mind. It was now almost two months since Jesus had been crucified, and the Jews of Jerusalem had seen no more of him. 
Oh, sure, there were rumors that he was risen from the dead, but they hadn't seen him. And so the Galilean rabbi began slowly to slip from people's memories. And now there is this strange scene with these apostles speaking in all sorts of foreign languages, proclaiming the great mysteries of God. And the people on Pentecost morning wondered, what does it all mean? What is this all about? If they're not drunk, as some have supposed, what can possibly explain this unusual phenomenon? As Peter brings his sermon that day to a close, he answers their question. Here is what it all means, Peter says. So as we consider Peter's closing points in his sermon, we want to look first at a series of events. Then we're going to consider the implications of those events and finish with the indictment. To understand the series of events that Peter outlines here, we really have to look back to verse 32, where he reminded them clearly that this Jesus God raised up again. So the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the first point for consideration. That resurrection was attested by multiple eyewitnesses, including those who were there that morning. Peter, John, and the rest of the eleven were all eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They had seen him, they had talked with him, they had felt his hands, they knew with complete certainty that Jesus was alive again. And so this resurrection was a clearly established point. The second event that Peter mentions is the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of God. This is connected with his ascension into heaven. As Jesus left the earth and returned to his Father, he came as the victorious Redeemer, the one who had accomplished all that his Father had given him to do. And because he had accomplished the plan of redemption, Jesus was given glory and honor, and he was seated on the throne of heaven. He was... And he is the king of glory, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. King Jesus reigns as the king of the saints, governing and guiding his church from heaven through his word and spirit. His kingly authority also now stretches throughout the entire universe since all authority in heaven and on earth had been granted to him. So as the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper famously observed, not one square inch of this universe is outside the sovereign control of King Jesus. He is king over everything. 
The third event in the sequence was receiving from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. And this gift was bestowed upon Christ in fulfillment of the everlasting covenant of redemption. In other words, this had been the plan of the triune God all along. When the Son completed His work, the Spirit would go forth to apply the redemption purchased by Christ to all of those whom the Father had chosen from eternity past. But this receiving was really for the purpose of giving, which then leads us to the fourth event in our sequence. And that fourth event was that Christ poured forth the Spirit upon the apostles, causing them to preach in foreign languages and to call their listeners to repentance and faith. Peter describes it as this which you both see and hear. The obvious manifestation of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, evidenced by the speaking in all of these different foreign tongues, was simply unprecedented. (laughs) Nothing like that had ever happened before. And the fact that these listeners were marveling at it reinforces the point. This was a very perplexing thing to them. They couldn't understand it. They groped for meaning, but they could not find meaning. Now, while it might be tempting to view these four events as isolated things, unrelated to one another, that is certainly not how Peter saw it. For Peter, these were four links in a chain, with one leading to another, and so on. The resurrection leads to the ascension and exaltation of Jesus. The ascension and exaltation of Jesus leads to the receiving of the Holy Spirit. The receiving of the Holy Spirit leads to the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so, the chain is presented... And especially so that the last link will be connected to the first link. So the fact that you're seeing the manifestation of the Holy Spirit here connects through that chain all the way back to the resurrection. The manifestation proves to you that Jesus has arisen as we have been telling you that he was. It proves to you that he is ascended and exalted to the right hand of God. It proves to you that he has received the Spirit and poured forth the Spirit. And what you see and hear in Jerusalem on Pentecost morning is a powerful apology for what we have been saying about Jesus all along. Now, it's one thing just to make bare assertions without any proof. And there's a lot of this that goes on in our society today. People claim all sorts of stuff. But upon closer examination, if they don't have proof, the claim falls to the ground. It's laughable. But when you've got claims that are backed up by ironclad evidence... It is impossible to refute. 
And what Peter does here is not makes, he does not make bald assertions. He makes powerful claims supported by ample evidence. Jesus is risen. Jesus is exalted. Jesus has received the Holy Spirit. Jesus has poured forth the Spirit. That's what you're seeing. That's what you're hearing. And so if you want to make sense of this, you have to understand it in light of that. And Peter leaves them no wiggle room. There's no way that they can escape this argument that he has presented for them. Well, having pointed out this chain of events, Peter also helps his hearers to understand something of the implication of those events and actions. He says plainly in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. So now we're getting into the implications. What does this all mean? How? What does it imply? Here's what it implies. God alone has made him both Lord and Christ. Now, God alone possesses the necessary authority to make anyone either Lord or Christ. And in his sovereignty and in his wisdom, God has chosen to make Jesus both Lord and Christ. He has exercised his prerogative to grant these titles to Jesus. And these two titles, Lord and Christ, are full of meaning. Christ means the anointed one, the Messiah. And no, Christ was not Jesus' last name. We tend to think that because we see it so often and we just assume, well, his first name was Jesus, his last name was Christ. No, Christ is a title. It means the anointed, the Messiah. God anointed Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, the one who is sent from heaven to obtain eternal salvation at the cost of his own life. He would be the appointed sacrifice, giving himself as a ransom for the many. And as the anointed one, he carries with him the full authorization of God. It's like when you order something from a store, and they say, well, it'll be in on Thursday. Do you want to pick it up, or do you want someone else to pick it up? And you say, well, I'm working at that time, so I need to have someone else go pick it up. Well, you authorize them. And they can go into the store and show their ID and pick up that because they're the authorized representative. The Father has authorized the Son. And this anointing is not just a nice ceremony. It's actually imbuing him with the authority to act. To function in God's stead. And so Christ is actually a very exalted term. But the other title is even more lofty, Lord. While the Greek term kurios, 
translated Lord, can mean human Lord, or even be a polite term of greeting like Mr. In this case, it means the Lord. This is the name which is above every name, the ineffable name of Yahweh, Jehovah. And this term, Lord, is bestowed upon Jesus in full recognition of his complete and perfect obedience, as well as his suffering and death. Now again, we're so used to this. We just take this for granted. And yet this is something incredibly profound, which would have been utterly scandalous to the Jewish mind. The Jews, for a long, long time, have refused to use the word Yahweh, the Hebrew name that God takes for himself, because they thought that if we ever pronounce it, we might be misusing the name, and therefore we would not be held guiltless because we would be taking his name in vain. So they scrupulously avoided the use of the name Yahweh, and they inverted it with the letters of the word Adonai, which is another form of Lord. And that's how we get the word Jehovah, it's this Jewish mishmash, so they will never say the name Yahweh for fear they might misuse it. And even today, if you speak to serious, practicing Jews, they will never pronounce that name. But now, what is being said is, the name Yahweh, Lord, is being given to Jesus. A man. And if it is unthinkably blasphemous for anyone to even pronounce this name, what must it be for someone to take the name Yahweh, Lord? To be referred to as the Lord. The Jews just simply could not abide by this. And so... All of these Jews are now to understand, without any misunderstanding, that this Jesus, the man whom they've known for these past three years, the man whom they have resisted and opposed, this Jesus is the one whom God himself designated as their Messiah and the Lord Yahweh. He also spells out the implications by directing them to Psalm 110. And in the very same vein as his treatment of Psalm 16 in last week's passage, he now says, it was not David who ascended into heaven. So if you've thought that Psalm 110 was autobiographical, well, you're plainly wrong. David wasn't speaking about himself but instead, he's been speaking about the Messiah. And what does Psalm 110 actually say? The Lord said to my Lord, <coughs> Yahweh, Jehovah, said to my Lord. This is 
God the Father speaking to the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And what does the Father tell the Son? The Father invites him to sit at my right hand. (laughs) This is a place of influence, a place of prominence, a place of power. It amounts to an invitation to join me on my throne. Sit here beside me and rule together with me. But that's not where it stops. It's not just an invitation to sit down, but the direction to sit there until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now again, we have lots of misunderstandings. You might have a footstool at home. Maybe you have a favorite footstool. Maybe it's been in your family for generations. And on the end of a hard day, you sit in your easy chair and you put your feet up on the footstool. And it's such a comfy thing. You just love your footstool. Banish that from your mind. What's going on here is quite different. And we go back to a battle where Joshua and the armies of Israel fought and defeated certain Canaanite kings. And after the battle was over, they lined those kings up, laying on the ground, and Joshua came and he put his feet on their heads. It's a picture of utter submission to the victor. It's not comfort and ease in your den. It is triumph on the battlefield. The victor putting his feet on the heads and the necks of the vanquished foes. So you, Messiah, sit on the throne and rule while I make your enemies bow under your feet. Well, I defeat them, and you subjugate and humiliate them. And so this is really what's going on here. The Son is being enthroned to rule, while the Father is carrying out a campaign to destroy all opposition to the Son. And the day will come when every single enemy will be under the feet of Jesus, the Son of God, save one enemy. The last enemy, the great enemy, to be dealt with at the end is death. And the victory will be completed and finalized when the dead are called from their graves on the very last day of human history. So between Jesus' enthronement at his ascension and the end of history, guess what's happening? The Father is subduing all opposition to the Son. He is working out a program to bring the enemies under the Son's feet. And what the Father desires to do, the Father surely will do. He will carry out this victory. 
And so this chain of events leads us to understand some important things. The Son of God is ruling from heaven while all of his enemies are being subdued beneath his feet. And this is the ongoing program of victory that the Father and the Son are working out here through the mediation of the Holy Spirit. And together they are cooperating to subdue all things to the righteous rule of the risen, victorious, and exalted Son of God, and nothing will stand in their way. All the hosts of hell cannot prevail against this program of victory that the triune God is spreading across the globe. Now, you might say, that sounds really great, but have you read the newspaper lately? Have you watched the news? What's going on in our society is so horribly sinful in so many ways. How can you maintain this with a straight face? Dear friends, we get our theology not from the newspaper, but from the Word of God. And what God is doing in this world is His business. And yes, things do seem pretty bleak right now, no doubt. But sometimes it's darkest before the dawn. You read the history of the years leading up to the Reformation, and it was rotten, horrible garbage throughout most of Europe. The flame was almost quenched before Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses. Now, to believe in this program of victory does not say we're on a rocket ride to the moon, but it realizes that God in his sovereign wisdom works out his plans, and there are peaks and there are valleys. There are times of great advance, and there's times when things seem to be settling back down to some pretty low spots. My personal opinion is that we're in one of the lowest spots we've ever hit. But you see, the truth is that Christ is still working his plan. The Father is still bringing about subjection of enemies. And all of these enemies will one day be placed under Christ's feet. Well, how is this all accomplished? Are we to use the weapons of this world to secure this victory? No, not at all. The apostles were not wielding swords or spears. They had no bows or arrows. But instead, they had the power of the gospel. That spiritual weapon that is mighty to subdue strongholds and to bring every thought captive and to make it obedient to Christ. You see, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, both Jew and Gentile. And it is through the gospel, applied by the power of the Holy Spirit, that the enemies will be subdued and made obedient to Christ our Savior. Do not underestimate the power of the gospel. The gospel is God's chosen weapon to bring this opposition low. 
And we do a great disservice when we secretly think, oh, all we have is the gospel. If we had marketing, ho, ho, we could be a powerhouse if we had marketing. Or if we had the brains of the entertainment industry, oh, we could be so useful. Or if we had all of the advantages of the educational model, we could do so much good. But all we have is the gospel. That's just wrong. God doesn't use marketing strategy. He doesn't use entertainment. He doesn't use educational establishments. He uses the church that faithfully preaches the gospel. And that gospel remains his power unto salvation. Well, having established this chain of events and then having teased out the implications of those events, Peter now delivers the indictment. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And it's that last statement especially that pierces deep into their hearts. This Jesus, whom you crucified. The very one who was the Lord and the Christ of God, God's righteous servant, you crucified him. Now when you begin to connect these two things, you can see the enormity of their crime. First of all, look at what God had done with and for and through Jesus. And then second, look at what the Jews of Jerusalem had done to Jesus. You see, God exalted Jesus. They cast him down. God honored Jesus. They dishonored and disowned him. God gave him honorable titles They mocked and ridiculed him as prophet, priest, and king. God crowned him with glory, and they nailed him to a tree. And as the horrific nature of their actions sinks in, they must have been connecting the dots, especially the dots from Psalm 110. And their mindset must have gone something like this. God has seated this Jesus at his right hand in heaven, waiting until all the enemies of the Lord and of his Christ are subdued beneath the feet of the Messiah. And oh my, we have become his enemies by nailing him to the cross. We are directly in the path of his onslaught. God is coming for us. And we cannot escape his horrible wrath. What shall we do? How shall we escape? Now we know 
that this is their mindset because they say, brothers, what shall we do? They're terrified because they know what's coming against them. Most of us have never experienced any sort of war, certainly not up close and personal. Maybe we've watched war on TV or we've watched movies about war, but we've never been in the path of an invading, opposing army. And when you are in the direct path and there's an army bearing down on your property, you're terrified. What shall we do? How can we escape what is coming our direction? And the Spirit is helping them to understand that they are in the crosshairs and that God's destruction is almost upon them for their sins. But we also know that the Holy Spirit was working to change their hearts. And we're going to see a mass conversion of 3,000 souls as they turn to Christ for forgiveness. There is a sense in which we could step back from this and say, boy, weren't those Jews horrible? Those Jews in the first century were just rotten. They deserved whatever they got. And we can keep ourselves very, very distant from it. But I would suggest to you that there's a sense in which we are involved in this as well. Not directly, not personally. You were not there in the first century in Jerusalem nailing him to the cross. So it's not as if you have to pay reparations for something people did a long, long time ago. But there is a sense in which it was our sins that nailed him to the cross. Your sins and my sins. And while we don't have the direct personal involvement, we cannot say that we are completely, completely removed from what happened to Jesus upon the cross. Our sins nailed him to the tree. I love what Rembrandt does with this in a painting that he did of the crucifixion. And again, second commandment issues. I know I've been using picture illustrations a lot. I don't approve of pictures, but there's this painting of Jesus being crucified. And in the crowd of people that are hoisting the cross into place, here is a man and it's Rembrandt's own face. And what Rembrandt is saying is that it was my sins that put Jesus on the cross and made him suffer what he suffered. And I cannot exonerate myself by saying, I wasn't there, that was 2,000 years ago, this has nothing to do with me. In a sense, we are as guilty as they, because our sins were as heinous as theirs. And so we too have to ask the question, what should we do? How will we escape? 
The wrath of God that is coming upon the world for its sin is coming for us too. How do we escape? You repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ and trust Him alone for salvation. You embrace Him as He is offered in the gospel because He is the only way of escape. Apart from Him, there is no other safety. So for all of those people who are professing all of those other religions, or all of those people who profess no religion, they are neglecting the only way of escape, the only name under heaven by which men and women can be saved, the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him. He will not disappoint you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you, through Christ, save sinners like us. We have nowhere else to turn, nowhere else to flee, but in Christ we find eternal security and salvation, a protection that not even the hosts of hell can violate. Lord, be working in every heart who hears this message to turn them unto you. Only you can change sinners' hearts. And we plead that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.